Um, as part of our re-entry into Acts after studying Thess Thessalonians for a few months, um, I need to confess what, something I've already told you, but we studied Thessalonians kind of out of chronological order. Technically, we had Paul going from Philippi to Thessalonica <coughs> to Berea to Athens, which is where Acts chapter 16 ends. And then he went to Corinth, and then he wrote Thessalonians. But I chose to have us look at Thessalonians right after he had been there, so that it would make more sense for us just kind of in the context of what had just happened rather than say, oh, let's study all of uh, you know, the Mars Hill discussion, which is what we're going to be doing here, and then go back to Thessalonians just for the simple connection that we made. Now, there's a, a new book that John MacArthur has put out that's actually kind of amazing. It's this one called One Faithful Life. And what the publishers did here they took the ESV translation of all of Paul's letters and put them in chronological order. Then inserted MacArthur's study Bible notes at the bottom of the page. So you can study, doing exactly what I'm doing right here, the New Testament or Paul's letters in chronological order with his notes at the bottom of the page. So I have a bookmark of where we are today and please don't read the notes because then you don't need to be in the class. Um, but I'm gonna pass this around just as an example of how helpful tools that are out there. If you're interested in doing some of this study yourself without having to have the 50 other commentaries and other resources that I use, uh, this is a great way to look at it yourself and maybe even a devotional study for yourself in the future. But it's actually a really amazing tool. One of those things you think, why didn't they do this ever before? Because there's not another book like this on the market, period. I've seen chronological uh, books of the New Testament put together, but never one with study notes like this, which makes it kind of interesting. Okay. We are in Acts chapter 17, verses 16 through 21 today. Typically, this section is studied all the way through verse 34, but I wanted to focus on the background before we get into Paul's actual sermon. It starts out, the very first verse, in, with verse 16. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So we have to stop and remind ourselves how we got here. I remember mentioned earlier, you can actually turn to your map uh, on the second page of your handout. Uh, actually found a biblical map on the top of ancient Greece and uh, this, this Aegean Sea area and a modern times map below it. So you can see where Bulgaria, Macedonia, Albania are in relation to modern day Greece and compare that to ancient or biblical times of Greece. But look at the biblical map. We had Paul come from Troas in the upper eastern part of the map, cross the sea to Philippi where he was run out of town on a rail, 
after being jailed, if you remember, Paul and Silas in the midnight uh, singing and all of that. Then they went to Thessalonica, were not there very long before they were run out on the rails, and they moved south to Berea, where he was run out on the rails. He left Luke in Philippi. We think he left um, Silas in Berea. And by the time he has, is leaving Berea, he has also sent Timothy back to Thessalonica to find out how they were doing. So he arrives in Athens alone. Paul has not been alone on any of his missionary journeys before. His first missionary journey, he had who? Barnabas and Mark for a very short period, but he had a companion, a fellow traveler, fellow worker. He goes from Troas with uh, Silas and then ends up in Philippi where Luke was. And then we have Timothy joining them. We had this trio who we also saw in Thessalonians that all three of them were um, it, uh, identified as the writers of Thessalonians, or at least the, those that are speaking for the, the message. So he walks into Athens alone. This has never happened before. Many expositors in addressing this actually ask the question, was this a low point in Paul's life? When we think about how unsuccessful by worldly standards he has been. He gets run out of Philippi, gets thrown in jail, gets run out of Thessalonica, Thessalonica, he gets run out of Berea, and here he is by himself in a strange city. He's well aware of what Athens represents. He's not an idiot. Um, Athens was still a center of of great thinking and philosophy in the area. But you kind of wonder what was going through his mind. We don't know. He doesn't write about it. Doesn't, he doesn't even hint at it in the text. But, you know, as a human being, as a man, I have to wonder what I would be thinking. You know, we, we like to and we believe that Paul was a very strong man because he was all sold out for God. But you see throughout his letters, there's a lot of introspection that comes up. And you wonder how much of this is bugging him, but then he walks around Athens and he gets a little upset. So I decided, well, let me just look into Athens. We've never studied Athens before. We've never talked about Athens. You could go into Wikipedia and read all you want about Athens. So I am going to not use Wikipedia. I'm going to use a variety of other resources to talk about it. Because the Athens of this day, Paul's day, is not the Athens of yesteryear. This is a city whose light has faded. You may not re realize this, but at this time, because Rome was the conqueror, they were the empire, Athens was not the capital of Greece. Corinth was. Corinth was the seat of the Roman government 
in the Greek area. Athens was there, it still had influence, but it was not the capital. We keep thinking, well, because it's the capital today, it was always the capital. Well, it's not true. It is the most celebrated city of all of Greece. Uh, for if you have any memory of the Olympics, 2004, that's where that, that that's where the Olympics were held. Were held in Athens. There was a big hullabaloo about it being. Um, now it's the site of where the Olympics originally began. If you remember that uh, that thing was going on. And I looked it up. There were 11,900 athletes who attended. In Athens, in biblical times, at the time when Paul was there, there was probably less than 20,000 people in the entire city. There's now millions, maybe 2 million people there or more. It's uh, a lot smaller in geography than Phoenix, but has as many people. So imagine squishing us all into Tempe. <laughs> that would be interesting. I'm not saying it's the same size, but you get, you get the idea. Let's stick everyone in the entire valley into Tempe, Mesa, and Chanter. Boom. That's about the size of Athens. And uh, I had the chance to visit there when I was 19 as part of a college thing. I actually have pictures that I brought to show you. Um, Try not to look at the length of my hair. Uh, it was rather infamous at that time. But anyway, um, it was, it's a dirty city today. It's crowded. It's just, I mean, there is, you feel that tension of modern and ancient times jammed together into one spot. Uh, the pollution there is really bad which is why they're having tried to restore a lot of the ancient Greek structures because the acid in the air has begun to eat away at the marble. So that's, that's the city today. Paul's day, it's just like a forgotten, wonderful spot. It was started, founded by Theseus, the hero of Attica, who slew the Minotaur and conquered the Amazons and was named for the goddess Athena. It's five miles inland. If you look at your um, modern map on that, uh, that, that page and you find Athens, you see there's another dot almost right on top of it called Piraeus. Piraeus is the port. That's the one that's actually on the water. And it's a five mile um, straight shot from Piraeus to Athens. In ancient times, I did not know this, but they built a wall on each side of the road from Piraeus to Athens that was 50 feet high to basically fortify the ability for them to get stuff from the port to Athens if Athens were under siege. 50 feet high. Now, for those of you trying to imagine how high that is, our sanctuary, if you put Pastor Jim in front of the podium on the floor, the ceiling is 50 feet. So think of six gyms on top of themselves, you know, or eight of them actually. 
and then he could change a light bulb at the very top. And that's what he does during the week, by the way. He doesn't study, he just changes light bulbs in the sanctuary. Uh, he's tall enough. But anyway, that's how big this wall was. You go, that's ridiculous. Well, they never had any problem. No one could climb the wall. No one could knock it down. It seemed to be ridiculous to even try because what's all that's going to do? All the effort you'd go to knock the wall down, all it does is shut off some supply. Why don't we just attack the port city? Well, the problem was that Athens had a navy. So it was a little tough to beat the navy as well as beat them on land. Well, you might remember in 500 BC, you remember that time. Oh, sure. Yeah, yeah. Philip was there then. No, no, sorry. (laughs) Actually, John was. (laughs) But anyway, it's 500 BC. The Persians tried to conquer Greece. Hannibal with his elephants coming up over the pass, crossing from Troas and Turkey over into Greece, they started coming down and they were attacking Macedonia. Macedonia is the northern half of Greece. Achaia is the southern half of Greece. So they're coming across and the Macedonians turned to the Athenians and the Spartans and said, can you help us? And they did. And they threw off the the, the, the Persian hordes using their navy. Uh, The navy was actually completely destroyed during the first battle, but they rebuilt it quickly and crushed the Persians by cutting off their supplies. And they had to leave because they were starving. A hundred years later, under Pericles, the city reached what they call its zenith. At this same time, so this is around 440, 450 BC in that era, Nehemiah was rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem. The book of Malachi was being written. So this gives you the biblical chronology when Greece was beginning to reach its zenith and that's when the Parthenon was built. So if you look at page three of your handout, you see the Parthenon at the top. I only did that because you know this picture vividly. But that thing is 2,400 years old. It's extraordinary. The Parthenon is a temple to Athena. Inside the temple of Athena was a massive gold and ivory statue whose, quote, gleaming spear point could be seen 40 miles away. So trying to picture that in my head, I said, now imagine the Parthenon sitting on top of Camelback Mountain. It means you could probably see it from Casa Grande. That wink of light as the sun hit the gold spear tip. You could see it for dozens of miles. This is an extraordinary place. The Parthenon was built. It became the seat of literature, philosophy, science, rhetoric. All these began to flourish under Pericles. But 
as what happens with all empires, Pericles died, and the Peloponnesian War began from 431 to 404 BC. However, the influence of Athens continued. The Greeks all kind of figured it all out and, you know, stopped fighting with each other, briefly anyway. And you have Socrates, Plato, Aristotle, Epicurus, Zeno, Sophocles, Aristophanes, all of them lived here. We recognize probably almost every one of those names. The biblical writers of the New Testament knew most of those names and knew their writings. Those writings went everywhere. Well, why? Well, about 100 years, 60 years actually, late years later, Philip II of Macedonia, for whom the city Philippi is named, he came down and conquered Athens. He took it over. Right about that same time, he hired a tutor for his son. He hired Aristotle. Wouldn't that be kind of interesting? Yeah. Hey, buddy, we'll pay you 50 bucks an hour. Come to my house. Wow. His son was named Alexander the Great. At least that's how we know him today. His son Alexander took Aristotle's writings with him when he conquered the known world. Thus, Greek culture and the philosophy of Athens spread everywhere. We studied this when we studied the Apocrypha, which not every one of you were in here at the time, but that period of time from the building of the wall of Jerusalem, Nehemiah, to the advent of Jesus Christ is 400 years. And in those 400 years, we have the growth of Greece, the growth of Rome, and we had the Maccabean era and all of that kind of stuff. But the idea that a unified thought, unified language, Greek, created the possibility for the gospel to spread when Jesus came. Without that, you would have not had all of those roadways. You would not had a common language that everyone spoke. You would have not had all these other things. It goes back to this time. Well, 200 years after Alexander the Great, Rome conquered Athens, 146 BC. But as typical, they left the city alone, just let it do what it would. They moved the capital to Corinth, and the shine of Athens as a seat of power went away, but it continued to be known as a seat of thought. 200 years later, Paul arrives. There's maybe 20,000 people in the city. But at the time, in all of the Roman Empire, there were three well-known university areas or arenas. It was Tarsus, where Paul learned, Alexandria in Egypt, and Athens, where we are right now. In Athens, you could find the Academy of Plato, the Lyceum of Aristotle, the Porch of Zeno, and the Garden of Epicurus. And to add one more little trivia bit here, Athens is only 160 miles away from Mount Olympus, where Zeus lived. 
So basically think of Mount Olympus being just north of Flagstaff from where we're sitting today. Now for us, we can get in a car and drive to Flagstaff in a little over two hours maybe, depending on traffic, depending on brush fires, depending on whatever's going on up there. If today, I actually looked it up, the drive from Athens to Mount Olympus will take you six hours, even though it's only 160 miles, because it's not the I-10 or the I-17. It's this windy little thing back and forth on and around all the mountains and the crags, and if you were to walk it, it would take you a couple weeks. And yet, that's still almost next door. The whole seat of the mythology of Greek and Rome is right down the street from Athens. Isn't that fascinating? Well, that's the world, the city, into which Paul walked. Now, I said I had some photos, and I will... These are not the greatest photos in the world, but it started because um, when... Our mom passed away in March. We were going through various photos, and we found this one of my father leading music on Mars Hill in 1980. So I'll just pass this one around. It's kind of interesting. But then I thought last night, you know, I was there in 1977, January. It's just yesterday. I was five. <laughs> I was a college freshman, and it was actually a Jan term. Grand Canyon University at the time would have, the month of January was a one-month course in one, in one topic. And our class was to go to the Holy Land and to, uh, to Greece. And it's kind of neat because it, it was paid for out of the inheritance from my grandfather, who was a Lutheran pastor, and it was apparently what he had willed to me. I never knew how much it was, but my parents said it was just enough to cover that trip. So I can always say that my grandfather got to send me to the Holy Land, and I've never forgotten it. Well, I have three pictures. I can only, all I can do is explain them. The first one is me standing at, by the pillars in the Parthenon. So you can get a sense of the scale. If you've never been there, it's overwhelming. We see these nice little pictures and go, oh yeah, yeah, nice little sweet little, you know, building with uh, columns in it. No, these columns are rather large, so that's the first one. Then the other two pictures are actually taken from Mars Hill. I'm standing on Mars Hill in one, pointing down at the marketplace, where it says, and we'll get to that in the text, so it literally, you can stand on Mars Hill, it's about 4,400 feet high. So you're looking down into this plain, and that's where the marketplace was, where Paul walked. So that's this one. And then if you turn around, so you have first you see the marketplace, and then you turn this way, and up from there is the Parthenon, which is this picture. So you get a little bit of the context of where Mars Hill is in relation to the Parthenon. They're not in the same place. If you're to look at your map on page three, so I have the Parthenon itself on the top of the page, a drawing of looking south. 
So it's like us looking at South Mountain from here. So if you're looking at that map, you see the very top is the Acropolis, the highest place in all of Athens is where they built the temple to Athena. And you can see that sheer rock wall. It's still there, and it's very obvious why they would put their god at the top of, the, of that mountain. But just to the left on the drawing, you see it's still a high hill, but it's not as high as the Acropolis, is Mars Hill, the Areopagus. Then the map that I have on the bottom of the page kind of flips it around because that's a north-south uh, 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 map. If you look carefully, if you could read it, in the upper right, left quadrant, you see the Dip, Dippy Lawn Gate. It's like the northwest corner of that. That's, if you walk out that gate and walk due west, you will come to the port city. So if you got out a boat, got off a boat, most likely Paul arrived by boat. It's very unlikely that he came by land. They probably, you know, whisked him out of Berea, stuck him on a boat, and they went around the, uh, the, the islands and through, and then entered this way, and that ma those massive walls were built, and Paul walked the five miles, walked through the Dip Dipilon Gate into the marketplace because you can see right in the middle of that map the word agora and the word agora means market so you can see the straight shot literally you walk through the gate the first thing you walk into is the mall it's the mall of america except this one's the mall of athens it's where everybody put out their shingle and sold their wares it's the heart of the city for its commerce but looming over it at all times. You can't go anywhere down there without turning and seeing the Parthenon at the top of the city. It's like when you're running around Phoenix and you get turned around and if you can see Camelback Mountain, you know where you are. We can orient ourselves to our landmarks. Because if you spin around, you go, is that South Mountain or North Mountain? I'm not sure they look alike. Well, South Mountain's bigger, so I guess I'm on this part. But if you see Camelback, you know exactly where you are in the city. That's how the Acropolis and the Parthenon acted. But just to the northwest of the, of the Acropolis is the Areopagus, or Mars Hill, where the events of our passage take place. So, I've explained all the maps, I've given you a broad picture of everything. So let's look at the text a little more carefully, just to get a sense of what Paul is experiencing when he walks into this incredibly famous city. You think about it, you had Tarsus, Alexandria, and Athens as the three great places to get an education in all the philosophies of the world. And Paul knew about it. We actually find in his address to the Greeks in our next week's passage, he's quoting from Greek scholars. 
We actually have him quoting Greek scholars in the New Testament. So he's not unfamiliar with them. He's studied them. He knows what they're about. And so while Paul is waiting for them, for Silas and Timothy at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him. The word provoked there is used only twice in the entire New Testament. First time is here. It means it is the, uh, well, I'll write it up on the board here. It so I can spell it right. P A R O X Y N O. Paroxino, from which we get our word paroxysm, which means to have like an epileptic seizure or a fit. Paroxino means to be provoked or to be repulsed. The only other time it's used in the New Testament is 1 Corinthians 13, verse 5. Love is not easily provoked. Paroxno. Same word. It's not easily put into this position of being repulsed or provoked or made anger, made angry. In the Septuagint, in the Old Testament written in Greek, it is used in Exodus when the people of Israel built the golden idol. It said God was paroxnoed to anger. They poked the bear when they built the golden calf and God responded in anger. He was paroxnoed. So imagine, Paul walks into this city and he looks around, and this is what he saw. Pliny the Elder, the Roman historian, said there were over 30,000 statues in Athens. There's only 20,000 people in the entire city. And there are 30,000 idols or statues. Petronius said it's easier to find a god in Athens than it is to find a man. Pausanias added, there are more statues of gods in Athens than in all the rest of Greece combined. Everywhere he turns, he sees Apollo, Jupiter, Venus, Mercury, Bacchus, Neptune, Diana, etc., etc., with these elaborate, gorgeous, beautiful pieces of art, either in sculpture or painting or um, layered with gold and silver and gems everywhere you turn. It's an assault on the senses. He's never seen anything like this before with his own eyes. And he's provoked by it. He saw that the city was full of idols. That phrase, full of idols, is a Greek word, kataildalos, K-A-T-E-I-D-O-L-O-S, for those of you who care. Kataidalos is found only here in the entire New Testament. 
and that word cannot be found in any Greek literature. This is the only time this word is used in writing that anybody knows. Wow, so how do you find out the meaning of a word when you don't know where it came from? Well, obviously you look at the roots and the, you know, the various pieces, you piece it together, and this is where you come up with the idea of a city full of idols. Well, John Stott says, if you look at its construction carefully, it suggests that it is a city that was under idols. It was buried by them. So much that you just walk around, it's like, and I don't know about you, but if you've ever gone to a city like Athens or like I did when I was a kid, after a while, you become numb to all of the art. I mean, you turn a corner, it's like, okay. It's like going to Vegas and being numbed by the uh, slot machines. You can't move without running into one. So imagine that every one of those slot machines in Las Vegas is a statue to a god. Oh, wait. They are. <laughs> they just don't, they aren't quite as finely crafted. But you get the idea? You walk in and you're assaulted by it to the point it's just blinding and then you just stop seeing it. About 25 years ago, Christian students at Stanford got tired of what their professors were saying to them. And so they wrote, they posted this in their, they actually ran an ad in the Stanford Daily newspaper. So you, you know, if you have the ad and you pay for it, you can, at least back then you could pretty much put in what you wanted. And they wrote, why are we Christians willing to follow Jesus into suffering in order to accomplish his missions of liberation? Why? Because Jesus has changed our minds about a lot of things, and we can no longer tolerate the foolishness and futility that is passed out as wisdom at this university. We are tired of the enlightenment of this age, which is blindly ignorant of its intellectual slavery to materialism and its contradictory obligation to ethical relativism. We are tired of seeing people's lives wasted and unfulfilled because of their submission to the established world order. Wow. Do that today, they get kicked off, got a school. But it's the same principle. These students, just in a recent era, recent time, just got fed up with the city buried by idols. And these idols were being force-fed to them and telling them that they're nourishing. This is what the world does. They shout lies often enough and loud enough until everyone is so numb to it, they go, well, is that, that must be the truth. Article I found just yesterday, it's a Gallup poll recently done, asking people, what is the percentage of the American population that is gay. Any of the LGBTQ initials, whatever. And the common answer across all of the polling is around 20%. That's what most people say. 
The truth is, it's less than 5%. That's the truth. So what we have is a very small but very loud group that is shouting loud enough and often enough that people are saying, well, there's got to be a lot more of them because, boy, they are loud. And, you know, they have a point. They're being oppressed. So we need to change everything to accommodate them. 5% of the country is wagging the, the dog of the other 95%. Isn't that interesting? Anyway, I'll get off that little hobby horse for a second and get back to the text. So what did Paul do? Paul went into his hotel room and cried for 10 days. Oh no, it doesn't say that. Where did he go first? The synagogue. Well, that's interesting. That means there was one. In a city like this, there were Jews. And there were enough of them to have a synagogue. Remember in Philippi, there weren't any. Paul had to go to the river to find, what was her name? I don't remember. Lydia. And the women who were Jewish and talked to them because there wasn't a synagogue. You go to Athens, oh wow, look at this. There's a synagogue where we can talk. And he reasoned there. King James Version translates that word as disputed. Well, it's the idea of having discussions. He reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons. So those would be the God-fearers, the Greeks who believed the, uh, the Jewish um, faith. And then you have a little word, and, in the marketplace. On your paper, you could write the word agora, A-G-O-R-A. That's the Greek word for marketplace. They went to the agora. Every day. I love that. Paul didn't just go there once a week. He went to the synagogue when he could. But he would go to the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. God in his circumstances makes circumstantial things happen. It was just, oh, he just happened to be there. Well, yeah, God kind of arranged the whole thing for the conversation to occur. I do have a, a memory of the Agora when I was there as a student. It was actually really fun because you have these little shops around and you, you know, they all know we're tourists. I mean, we're wearing cameras around our necks, for goodness sake. And we're, we don't look Greek. Um, we would not probably be in that part of the, uh, the Agora if we weren't tourists. But you walk in, and of course, they're very interested in you, and they want a dicker. In fact, we were warned, never pay retail. Never pay what they offer you. That they, that it's just the way they work. I know you're uncomfortable with it. You're used to going into America, and that's the price, and that's what they charge you at the register. Here, they like to dicker. They like to debate. It's part of the fun. So I didn't want to bring it because it would have just been one extra thing, but I bought a little Greek vase. Now, I had found it in one shop, and I liked it, and I you know, kind of played with the, uh, the guy, and he ended up with a price, and I, yeah, I'll come back. Of course, as I walked out the door, the price dropped again. 
I went, that's all right, that's all right, you know. I walked down three doors, and there was the same item. And I went, huh. So I walked in, and I went, the guy down there gave me a price of this. Can you beat that? He goes, oh, yeah, he's a thief. (laughs) On and on and on. The price dropped and dropped and dropped. I got it for half of what the other guy was charging. And as I walked out, he followed me and started shouting at the guy down the, the, the way. I found out they were brothers. <laughs> These guys, this is part of their act. And we just love them shouting at each other, you're a thief, you should never have married your sister. All this kind of stuff, all that kind of weird stuff. It was just hilarious. But it was tense and tight. And the problem for our ladies in our group is that the men of the Greek, um, uh, how do you say, the Greek culture, their hands were very free. So as a young lady would walk by, she would suddenly feel the hand in an inappropriate place and a squeeze. And it's just constant. So the one... One young lady that was there, she was walking like this all the time. <laughs> she, was, she kept waving her hands behind her back, saying, I am not going to get that again. You know, it was, it was kind of funny, but anyway. That's the Agora. He went there every day. The divine appointments. But then it says in verse 18, Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with them. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, well, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus in the resurrection. You have to stop and go, Epicurean and Stoics in the New Testament? Oh my goodness. Well, yeah. These are the primary philosophies of that era being taught in the streets. By the way, the word philosopher, the Greek word, what does it mean? Break it apart. Philo, which is phileo, brotherly love, and sophia, wisdom, friend of wisdom. That's what philosophers are. That's the Greek word. That's what it means was actually invented back then to describe those who loved the pursuit of knowledge. One newspaper columnist, Frank Adams, defined philosophy, and I wish Jeff were here, as unintelligible answers to insoluble problems. (laughs) And as a professor of philosophy, Jeff has to deal with that. But anyway, you have Epicurean and Stoic philosophers. So you have to look up, well, what what are those? What does that mean? Well, the Epicureans, founded by Epicurus in 330 BC, have no belief in God, no belief in judgment. They didn't even believe the Greek mythology. It was all a bunch of hogwash. The chief end of man is to avoid pain of any sort, emotional, physical, whatever. So they're Philosophy was eat, drink, and marry, for tomorrow you will die. That's their whole philosophy. Pursue pleasure. Now, not debauchery. Not just, you know, 
outrageous debauchery, but pursue the pleasures so you feel good today. And then tomorrow you pursue more pleasure so you can feel good tomorrow. Because once the world, once your life ends, that's all there is. There's no more. God isn't to be feared because there isn't one. This is the Epicureans. The Stoics, on the other hand, were almost, they're not quite opposite, but they're about as far apart as you can imagine. Now, they were founded by the Greek philosopher Zeno, Z-E-N-O. So I had to ask the question, why aren't they called the Zenoists? Why are they called Stoics? Anybody have an idea? This was a new one to me. Tom, you know this one? The Greek word stoa means porch. And they studied at the painted porch in the Agora. Every day, Zeno would walk down to this particular porch that was very beautifully painted, and that's where he lectured. That's what they called Stoics, or porch people. Isn't that odd? But that's why they call it this, the porch of Zeno, which is the philosophy of the Stoics. Now, it was founded around the same time as the Epicureans, around 300 BC. Zeno lived until he was 96 years old, which is really unusual back in that day, and taught for 46 of them publicly. So he was really influential. They were fatalists. They believed in a, they were like a pantheistic God, a God that's around and kind of this amorphous power that's in everything. Think Star Wars the Force. That's what the Stoics believe, is that there is a power, but we can't give it any sort of substance. It's just kind of everywhere and everything. But we really don't believe in a God. We believe in some amorphous power. Their belief is that because there is no personal God, there is no rhyme or reason to what happens. And we can't change it. It just happens. They're fatalistic. So the key to happiness is don't get emotional about what happens. Whether it's good or bad. Just roll with it. As uh, one guy wrote it, the philosophy of Stoicism is grin and bear it. That's how you get through life. Um, since impersonal forces control every circumstance, you can't control them, then accept whatever comes without emotion. They had complete indifference to pain or pleasure. So the Epicureans, without saying, well, let's go have a party, let's go to the theater, let's do this, and the Stoics would say, why bother? We shouldn't have anything that replaces just the simple fact of being and being reasonable Think the Vulcans in Star Trek. That's kind of what that idea of Spock and all that is patterned after, is the stoicism of no emotion. Don't show emotion at all. There is a modern-day fascination with stoicism that is really quite amazing. I actually brought a book for you to show you as proof. 
if you love Stoicism, you can have a daily devotional called the Daily Stoic. 366 Meditations on Wisdom, Perseverance, and the Art of Living. Even has a ribbon marker. Um, there are quotes in here from Epictetus, Marcus Aurelius, Seneca. Um, any other names here that jump out at me? Um, these, these are the great writers of Stoicism from ancient times. I mentioned Marcus Aurelius. Marcus Aurelius was... Anybody? The Emperor of Rome. He was really powerful. He actually expanded the Roman Empire beyond how it, where it had already been taken. He expanded it even further. But fascinating about him is he wrote a series of meditations that are still around today. I actually have it on my shelf in our living room. Because you can read it and glean really some wonderful principles of a reasonable moral life. This is a quote. Marcus Aurelius set a high standard of more a personal conduct. And actually he demanded it of his soldiers. Which some of them followed, most of them didn't. The ethical system of the Stoics has been commonly supposed to have a close connection with Christian morality. But the morality of Stoicism, Stoicism is based on pride, and Christianity is based on humility. The one upholds individual independence, and the other, absolute faith in God. The one looks for consolation in the issue of fate, the other in providence. The one is limited by periods of cosmic ruin, and the other is consummated in resurrection. In Stoicism, God is not a personal being, but a spiritual force or soul power eminent in men and in things. So you read some of these incredible, actually really quite amazing quotes from Marcus Aurelius, and you go, wow, that's brilliant. So I'm attracted because it's truth. But it doesn't go, as this article brought out, to the idea of where is the source of it all. They say the source is nothingness. And we say the source of our ethics is God. So actually inside this book, I have placed an entire biblical response to Stoicism. This is what I do with my articles of things. My books are full of articles jammed in the covers of books because I read to understand so that I can have an answer if it comes up. Because otherwise, if someone walks up to you and says, hey, Stoicism's the way, man. I've been reading Ryan Holiday's book. You can get it emailed to you every day if you like, for free. And you, have, you go, what's a Stoic? I have no idea. Well, Paul did. Paul knew the beliefs of these guys. And he was conversing with them. And their reaction to him was to call him a babbler. The Greek word here means seed picker. Someone who just goes around and picks up seeds around the ground and just kind of collects them. It's random. Some, another phrase would be country bumpkin. Uh, Eugene Peterson in the message translated this as the airhead. What does this airhead wish to say? 
But others say, well, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities. Notice that the word divinities is plural. This is interesting. I had never seen that before until I started looking at this text really carefully. They say foreign divinities, but Paul is only preaching Christ. He's only preaching Jesus. Huh. But if he's, and they say, because he was preaching Jesus, and in the Greek it says, in Jesus and the Anastasis. Anastasis is the Greek word for resurrection. They thought he was talking about two different gods. They'd never heard that word, Anastasis, before, as if it were something divine. Oh, maybe we need to make an idol for that one, too. We need to find out more about this. What is an Anastasis? Who is an Ana who is Anastasis? Isn't that interesting? I'd never seen that before, but that is the only explanation for that word to be plural. Otherwise, they would say he's a preacher of a foreign divinity, not divinities. So they took him and they brought him to the Areopagus. Now, just for fun and excitement, Areopagus. Pagus means rock or hill. Ares is the god of war. God of war. And in Roman nomenclature, he is known as Mars, which is why we get Mars Hill. That's where Areopagus comes from. You have Arios, the Greek god of war, but in Rome, it's the Mars Hill, or the Greek god of war in Roman phraseology. So that's where we get it from. There was a, you know, obviously a big church group up in the Seattle area called Mars Hill, which collapsed um, after Mark Driscoll was removed. But that's where Mars Hill comes from. It comes from this, this phrase here. And as we said before, it's the second highest point in all of Athens. It was known as the place for debate and for tribunals. When they, when they were at their height, that's where the Supreme Court met, for lack of a better designation. So the big judges would rule on murders and big issues up on the Areopagus. At one time, on the hill was a stone of wrath, and on that stone the prosecutor stood, and across the way was the stone of shame where the accused would stand. And so they would stand on the hill, on the rocks, stone of wrath, stone of shame, and then the judges and rulings would happen. But remember, by this time, most of that really wasn't going on because the seat of power had moved they, it still was a place for conversation. Um, I, I couldn't really even think of a good example other than maybe thinking, is there a place on Arizona State's campus or any college campus where students just come just to have debates, just at random? Nowadays? Hmm? Nowadays, no, yeah. 
yeah, you can't do it now, but you know what I mean. In other words, a common place where people would come to exchange ideas and have conversation or debate. Twitter. Hmm? Twitter. Yeah, Twitter. Yeah. <laughs> it is possible that there used to be a temple to Ares on this site, but they can't find any any foundation necessarily. It probably was, you know, destroyed at some point in history under the various wars. Um, it's interesting, throughout all those wars, the Parthenon was never touched. They left it alone. Probably was just too beautiful and too amazing and too important. Imagine, well, I, I'm not going to make the comparison as a fact, but think of how the Muslims would feel if you tore down the Dome of the Rock. They might have a problem with that. So you tear down the Parthenon, the Greeks might have a problem with you. And then the farmers come out with their pitchforks and their torches, and the next thing you know, you've got a problem. Um, anyway. So they take him to the Areopagus, asking, may we know this new teaching that you're presenting? C.S. Lewis said, when you talk about defending the faith, one of the great difficulties is to keep the audience mind keep before the audience mind the question of truth. One must keep on pointing out that Christianity is a statement which, if false, is of no importance, and if true, is of infinite importance. So there's your tension. You have to say, this is it. If you think it's false, dismiss me. <coughs> if you think it could be true, then we have a serious conversation to have. And that is the crux of the matter. The problem is, they're, not, they're simply not interested in the question of truth or false. They only want to know if it will be comforting, or inspiring, or socially useful. Or to use a current phraseology in some churches, to be affirming. If you know what I mean. Verse 20. For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these mean. Now, I'm going to take a real quick side note. You know, I, I work as a literary agent, which means I work in the publishing business. But I happen to own a small Christian publishing company that publishes books. This verse is our company's motto. Because we publish Christian science fiction and fantasy. And so I looked at this and went, you bring strange things to our ears. We want to know what they mean. And I thought, oh, this would be great. Perfect verse because we take these wild stories, but they're written from a Christian worldview. So you have this story of a 10-year-old girl who's raised by wolves who thinks she's a dog. So in her mind, she's a beast. Her family is destroyed, her dog family. Her masters are destroyed, and she's alone in this world. I'm not, you know, I can tell you the story because basically the king takes her under her care to tell her that she is a child of the king and is not a beast. She has worth. She's valuable. And that's the parable of the story. You have this one where you have storytellers when they walk around their world, as they tell their stories, colors come out of the fingers. 
And as the stories are told, the, the, the colors take shape and coalesce into an object, and they sell it. Their story, peddlers. And again, you have metaphors and overpowering ideas of these great fantastical stories that have a Christian underpinning and belief. I only had to do that because when I came to this verse, I went, ooh, that's our, that's our company's motto. Because we try to say, what are these strange things? Well, that's what they are. And those who like that kind of literature really resonate with what we're doing because it's an alternative to the dark, godless, sex-filled, violence-filled, language-filled books that are being sold to teenagers. And we are presenting an alternative to that. So, the very end, it says, now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time with nothing except telling or hearing something new. What a fascinating phrase. This sounds like our modern day people chasing the celebrity du jour. And just watch our political cycle. You can have one person being all that for one cycle because they're new. There's something different. They put them on magazine covers. They put him on all the TV shows. And a week later went, eh, forget him. Who's next? You can have one three-minute exchange on TV and somebody suddenly is being declared the next president of the United States. And you kind of go, seriously? That's how vapid you people are? This is how vapid we are. Every single one of us in this room has been trained to do this. We spend our time with nothing except telling or hearing something new. Oh, the Bible? Oh, I read that once. Well, read it again. It's going to be brand new this time. And it'll have a whole different meaning to you. But we surf the web for the latest cat video. We look for something to the Twitter you mentioned, the, this whole idea of the, uh, what do they say, the endorphins jump out when your phone dings. Ooh, something important has happened. No, it hasn't. Not really. We have trained our brains to be Athenians. And Paul walks in our midst and he looks us in the eye and he says, what is wrong with you? It's Christ crucified. Jesus died for you to save you from your sins. What are you doing? And we kind of go, um, but have you seen the one where the dogs are ashamed? That's just really funny. You know, I'm not saying you don't have fun. But I'm saying we need to be very aware of our tendency to fall into the sin of the Athenians and looking for what's new. We're at the end of our time. Next week we'll actually look at Paul's sermon or Paul's presentation to these people and what he says and how it can be a model for us as well. Let's pray. 
Lord, thank you for this time, for this extraordinary passage, the, the background, the picture of these Athenians that are so much like us. So much like us. And that's because we're humans. We're fallen creatures. We don't know the glory of God until the glory of God is in front of us and provokes or penetrates our hearts. And then we know the truth. Just pray that we can express that to others and bring them into your kingdom as well. In Jesus' name, amen.